You're listening to The World Ahead with Allianz on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The World Ahead with Allianz on Monocle 24. This special documentary series seeks answers to some of the toughest questions confronting the world, whether it's changing demographics and ageing populations, to the trials posed by climate change or mass migration, you'll hear bright analysis and fresh insight from an expert global panel. Over five episodes, you'll hear Monocle's editors and special guests discuss everything from urbanisation and education to commerce and technology and how they will all shape our future. We'll feature extended reports from all around the world, scene setters from key markets and expert roundtables, where we'll bid to answer some of those key questions. Today's first instalment sets the agenda for the series and zeroes in on perhaps the critical issue confronting our planet today. So settle in for 30 minutes that might just change your world. You're listening to Monocle 24 and this is The World Ahead. We start with Ben Page, the CEO of leading UK market research and polling company Ipsos Mori, a man who knows a thing or two about looking to the future. We started by asking Ben how best to look ahead in order to ensure that the deed itself is a worthwhile enterprise. I think thinking about the future is one of the things that actually distinguishes humanity from other mammals and many other species. It's it's one of those very defining characteristics of our very humanity. But one of the catches is that we always love these reports at about this time of year about all the things that are going to be different next year, when actually the fact is, as Bill Gates has put it, that we're much more likely to overestimate the amount of change that will happen in the next one or two years, but underestimate how much things might change in a decade. And what are these strategic secrets to looking ahead? The key, according to Ben Page, and this is a theme we'll be returning to again and again on this programme, is to focus on the megatrends. There are certain things that we know are going to happen, and some things are more certain than others. So demographics is fairly robust. We know that the population's getting older. We can roughly work out what the trends are there. Things like fashion trends and whether people are going to be wearing fluorescents next year or not is an entirely different matter. But demographics alone tell us all sorts of interesting things. So in many developed countries, you're seeing a massive generational change, whereas the pre-1945 generation, so people who are now 70, begin to reach their peak mortality or rather crudely start dying off at a rather faster rate you see very rapid shifts in terms of attitudes to things like homosexuality misogyny so the idea that women should stay at home and also the idea of tribal loyalty to individual political parties and those trends are accelerating at the moment none of them make a massive shift overnight but they are they are definitely happening ben page of ipsos mori we'll be hearing more from him later Next, let's turn to Michael Heisert of Allianz Group, responsible for consulting the board on economic and trend developments that are important for the group's business environment. Michael explains some of the methodologies and techniques that they prioritise and how they look at short-term phenomena, but with an emphasis on long-term trends. We look uh, at the the more short-term developments uh, of the economies and financial markets, but also at the more long-term trends for doing the uh, short-term forecast, we, of course, use economic models and standard techniques of, of economic analysis, try to figure out where interest rates are going, where financial markets are heading, and where the growth on the global sense is about to be strong or, or less strong. 
But this is more the short-term responsibility. The long-term analysis is a trend analysis where we try to compile a lot of knowledge from within the teams of Allianz, but also from external experts to figure out where some of the most important long-term trends concerning demographics or climate change or many other trends are actually heading and whether we are prepared enough or whether we have to take action. So we do try to be a little bit a center of knowledge for these long-term trends. We try to summarize some of the insights that uh, researchers worldwide are publishing. So this is the type of methodology that we would have for, for the long-term trend analysis. Jeffrey Saunders is director at the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. We asked him to discuss some critical themes for the year and years ahead. One interesting facet of all this is to consider the role that analysts and indeed futurists play. All too often, are they on the margins when their work should be part of general political strategy and corporate governance? We asked Jeffrey whether that's a problem or an opportunity. One of the things that we work a lot with, I mean, the key challenge is, is helping people understand what we do know about the future and then helping us understand what we're uncertain about in the future and prioritize and deal with uncertainty in a structured framework which you can gather a group of people around to actually make decisions and take actions. And that's what good foresight, good futures process or futures processes actually do is help organizations, be they public or private, come to an understanding about what are the issues that are of high-impact strategic importance, these are things such as megatrends, but also what are the factors that emerge from these megatrends, either in combination or which can create some deal of uncertainty of how are we going to respond to it. We know sustainability, for example, is growing in importance, but how do we choose to deal with it as a society? It could lead to one development or it could lead to another set of developments. And if you're thinking about how do I position myself, my company or my organization or my community, you need to have an understanding of how that interplay can develop and then what would your strategy be if it goes one way or the other. And that's the process that we do and we work exploratively with the future. So we try to understand what is the range of potential scenarios or future developments and then what do we do if it goes one way versus another. And that's what we help uh, organizations do. Jeffrey Saunders from the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. Up next on The World Ahead, we'll shine a light on possibly the single most critical issue facing us all in the year and years ahead climate change. Stay tuned. Climate change could have the most profound effect on our societies, our economies, our very world, unless it is addressed. Yet the issue remains divisive. So is the challenge principally political in nature, economic, or is it a scientific discussion? Michael Heiser, again. Well, I think it is uh, basically a political and an economic uh, issue. There is some uncertainty about the factors that are causing the global warming, differences of opinion here. But actually, we can't stop at discussing these scientific issues in an environment of uncertainty. We just need to do whatever we can to address the issue. The issue is, of course, quite critical. Uh, we see the impact of global warming already, 
And we have to do something to prevent uh, this global warming trend from just continuing unabatedly. So some economic and political decisions have to be taken. And we need to be, in a way, preemptive to stop a further global warming with whatever levers we have as mankind. So um, I think the, the discussion is uh, is on the economic and political side, and it's, of course, a very, very timely and critical debate given the summit in Paris and some viable action will we put beneath that. Michael stresses the idea that in uncertain environments we must all do what we can. And this more bottom-up rather than top-down approach is certainly echoed by Geoffrey Saunders. We asked him whether you need supranational solutions as well as enlightened ideas to really tackle climate change. Well, I mean, climate change has been this, if you look at yeah, future studies institutions, if you look at scenarios, a number of corporate institutions and government institutions have done one of the key critical uncertainties over the last decade has been how do we tackle the issue of climate change and sustainability? Is it something that is a priority or is it something that pops in and out? Like it's always going to be there, but is it something that pops in and out of the top of mind among policymakers, among businesses and things like that? And that has been a critical issue that futurists and people interested in corporate foresight and other activities have been focusing on for the last yeah, 10, 15 years of how we'll respond to that. And one of the things is, yes, key top-down solutions are required, you know, carbon pricing, different agreements, a global agreement on climate change will be required to manage it in the future. But there's also a number of activities that, that emerge from the bottom up about businesses and communities coming together to, to find solutions about how they can go about creating this linkage between, you know, a better economic performance of what they're trying to do, a better environmental performance about actually creating a a more efficient use of the resources that they have on hand, but also at the same time delivering a social performance as well. So you need that that combination of factors at a bottom-up and also from a, a top-down solution. Jeffrey talks about both business and communities finding solutions. And this was front and centre too in the minds of Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, and editor Andrew Tuck, when The World Ahead sat down with them to hear their insights. We asked Tyler first... Is there a failure to engage by the public as they feel it's the business of government, whilst the other way around, there's too much political short-termism? I think people are also looking for, for benchmarks. And, you know, there's so much focus on trying to address this massive issue. And, and yet, there are so many corners of the world. And I'll look to Switzerland, for example, when it comes to the issue of recycling, where you want to, whether it's over the holidays, whatever it is, you, you, ha- you have a lot of rubbish. You have to go and, and purchase your rubbish bags from your grocery store. And, and they're, it's a little bit like buying fine alcohol or a bottle of champagne. You know, they're over the counter because they, I don't know, they cost eight or nine francs. And so the taxes, again, are also built in right away. And they will not collect, you know, unless you've paid that price. But, you know, by the way, the, the bags are also beautifully branded. Uh, you're, you're, you're quite sort of proud to, to put them curbside or, 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 in, or in the bin. So I feel that consumers are looking for you know, easy solutions. And it's not just the consumer as well. I think other governments. And so we're sort of striving for these sort of big pie-in-the-sky ideas. But I think there's already so much best practice around there. Yet everyone is really almost trying to project across where are we in a decade, where are we in 20 years' time, when I don't think that's what's required right now. 
And I also think it's interesting, you know, lots of the things that Monocle touches on are design, architecture, the built environment. And there you can do so many things, amazing, amazing things that really kind of have a big impact. We've, we often talk about the fact that you know, here in the office, we chose a system of uh, office furniture where you have a desk that can always be sanded down, taken to your next premises. It's always going to be with you for the journey of your company. Now, that's a kind of uh, that's a proper sustainable decision rather than I think that sometimes we get caught up in the trap of, you know, uh, was it made by somebody who's kind of lead certified or is it somebody who's kind of some got some green emblem on their desk? Actually, there are other sustainable stories that need to be told and that are simpler and more reliable than some of the things we get pushed. Obviously, one of the, you know, the big climate topics, and this is almost where the media gets lost, I think big corporations get lost, is also in okay, we all agree that we've we've gone past the 50% point. You know, we are in, clearly in an urbanized world. That's the direction that we're heading in. And again, there there are so many, you know, very, very simple things that can be, you know, that need to be sort of tackled and, and addressed. So again, we can spend a lot of time focused on, you know, the lead certification of a building, the windows, the, the photovoltaic network on the roof, et cetera. But as I think as Andrew's saying, you know, if you've just put in and, and you know, any of your tenants have gone for a sh- real short-termist approach that they think, oh, well, we're going to you know, probably replace all of our office furniture in three years. We're planning for a big move or we're going to be splitting the company, et cetera. Well, then there needs to be there needs to be taxes that go with that. Or there needs to be a reset in terms of education to get people that you need to be thinking for the long term, build it properly, build it right the first time, invest right the first time. So this is not a planet which just, you know, increases in volume because of landfill. Some wise words on best practice from Monocle's editor in chief and editor. But what of the political disengagement that we've heard about? We asked Ben Page whether, even speaking in the aftermath of the COP21 talks in Paris, many governments aren't bothered about climate change anymore. We're back to humanities, you know, evolving on the plains of Africa. So we're pretty good at reacting when a lion comes into the room and something will happen. But the idea that there's this slow-moving tsunami of whatever coming across, the, you know, we just, don't, we just don't react. And so humanity now tends to regard climate change as like death and taxes. It's sort of unpleasant, but inevitable. When we polled people across the G20 about that, there are countries actually where it's absolutely top of the list. So India and China which, of course, are seeing massive problems with pollution, do recognise it. But in the West, in places like Britain and America, it's right down at the bottom. People just sort of see it as somebody else's job to do something about it. And actually, it needs government to take the lead. Only 4% of people believe that they themselves can do anything about climate change. 73% think it's the government's job. But of course, the government is then waiting for the public to give them permission. They can't wait. So where does this leave us as we look to an uncertain future? We asked Michael Heiser whether the fact that solutions for the climate change issue and growth and prosperity are often treated as mutually exclusive presents a problem. Many governments are quite hesitant to take up the notion that both goals can be achieved at the same time and that most governments still see some conflict of interest or some trade-offs involved. I think the most important thing is to do climate protection in an economically sensible way. And if you take the right route, then it does not, it will not increase costs or it will not harm employment in traditional sectors. And it can even create jobs because it triggers technological progress. But you have to do it in the right way. And the way we have been proceeding for many decades has maybe not been the most efficient way of going forward. A very intelligent way, but it's hard to uh, implement uh, politically 
would be a global uh, emission trading scheme, which is something that uh, the policymakers are discussing, which is, as I said, very difficult to put through in practice. That would be a way to really internalize the cost, the climate costs of, of carbon emissions and other emissions to really trigger a technological progress uh, because it would be rewarding, it would be profitable to create new technologies that can actually reduce the carbon emissions or capture them, whatever. Uh, that would be the right way to go forward, but um, getting a global scheme for carbon emissions going is, of course, something uh, very, very difficult. I hope some progress will be made in the next years. A global scheme, then, is required, but what appetite is there for that? We'll be continuing our analysis of climate change with some international perspectives next. In every episode of The World Ahead, we'll cast our net far and wide, bringing insights from key thinkers, strategists, journalists and opinion formers around the globe. First up, in today's edition, we cross to the Tokyo studios of Monocle, where Bureau Chief Fiona Wilson joined Asia Editor-at-Large Kenji Hall to discuss Japan's attitudes towards and readiness to tackle climate change. At the climate summit in Paris in early December, um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe said that Japan's public and private sectors would aim to contribute about, um, well, nearly 10 billion euros in aid to developing countries by 2020 to help them fight climate change. I think this is an area where Japan has state-of-the-art technologies in, in geothermal energy and solar, solar technologies. Um, so it's in a position to help other countries curb their uh, carbon emissions at the same time um, with so many of Japan's nuclear reactors offline. Um, Japan really is not in a position to, to um, hit any of its targets uh, that it had set in previous years. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the paradoxes in a way of, of Japan's, you know, clean technology. Uh, you know, it's leading the way in so many fields, but everything was uh, stymied by what happened in 2011, those disastrous events, you know, tsunami, earthquake. And I think that that has really created a, a long-term situation for Japan. It's now using, you know, its emissions are rising. It's going in the opposite direction. And no matter how much clean technology they're producing, just the quantity that Japanese industry demands is making uh, the, the emissions situation really difficult here. At the, at the same time, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe sees this as an opportunity. He's, he's definitely plugging Japan's leading technologies in fuel cell cars and electric vehicles. Uh, and he's also talking about how Japan can help um, other nations uh, prevent disasters. You know, Japan is, has experienced tsunamis, earthquakes, um, you know, all sorts of disasters that could or could not be related to climate change. And so, you know, here's another area where Japan might be able to contribute. Isabel Hilton is the editor of China Dialogue, which has a particular focus on the environment and sustainability as they affect China and indeed the wider world. Isabel discusses some practical considerations when it comes to climate change, starting with what exactly China brought to the table at the recent COP21 meetings in Paris. China, you know, which uh, in Copenhagen was setting no limits on its uh, future emissions, has promised to peak at 2030 or sooner if it can. We would still like to know at what 
level it would peak and we would like to know how fast emissions would then come down. But nevertheless, it's a significant milestone. And I think the second thing it's bringing is a real commitment to getting a deal which, again, was not the case in Copenhagen. So China now sees its future as part of a carbon-constrained world, as the major supplier of low-carbon technologies to a future carbon-constrained world, as a country which is now in partnership with the US on climate change as opposed to in competition, and that makes it a pretty constructive member. So must we look to China, as well as the United States, as the key powers that matter here, almost the only two that do, whether in terms of cause or solution? Or is there original thinking that could come from anywhere in the world that might make the critical difference? And indeed, do we focus solely on these two powers at our peril? We heard from Isabel Hilton on the China story. Now let's turn to Catherine Sierra, non-resident senior fellow in the Global Economy and Development Programme at the Brookings Institute, who focuses on climate change, with a particular emphasis on the issues and policies in the developing world. She explains that US plans for climate change are rooted in pragmatism. The United States set a goal after Copenhagen and in the subsequent years to come to Paris in a leadership position, not because it wanted to basically boss other countries around, but because it needed to show that it was going to take action if other countries were going to be incentivized to also take action. And we know that global action is needed, not just one country can solve the problem of climate change. So it had two things that it wanted to deliver. The U.S. wanted to deliver its own credible action plan, Obama's climate action plan it's called, and it wanted to work with other countries like China, like India, like Mexico, to help them frame their own action plans so that jointly major countries could come and try to push for success. The U.S. plan is rooted in pragmatism. The Obama administration understands that the U.S. Congress, which is dominated by Republicans at this point, will not take action on a congressional level. They'll not pass new laws on climate change. So it takes as a point of departure that um, we will use to the furthest point you can stretch existing legislation as much as it can. So using the Clean Air Act, it is put in place something called the Clean Power Plan, which is um, intended to reduce emissions from coal-fired power plants. The plan has a number of other actions um, to support energy efficiency, to upgrade the electricity grid, to increase um, fuel standards in vehicles, to reduce emissions from hydrofluorocarbons and the like. So it's a wide-ranging plan of about 60 actions. By 2025, the ambition is to reduce emissions in the United States between 26 and 28%, but it also recognizes that is only a very first step towards putting the world on a pathway to maintain global warming at no more than two degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels. Catherine Sierra. And what of a view from the other side of the world too? Karen Middleton's a journalist and commentator in Canberra, and she summarises the Australian position. Well, the whole climate issue is incredibly politically volatile here. It's been central to every Australian national leadership crisis of the past six years, and there have been a few. 
In 2013, Julia Gillard was dumped as Labor Prime Minister in favour of Kevin Rudd, the man she'd replaced three years earlier, because she promised there wouldn't be a carbon tax and then introduced one. And in 2010, part of the reason she ousted Rudd was his decision to defer an emissions trading scheme after calling climate change the greatest moral challenge of our time and emissions trading the best solution. At the end of 2009, Rudd had returned from the disastrous Copenhagen Climate Conference without the world having secured a global emissions reduction deal. At home, he'd staked everything on it. He never recovered. And Rudd was only in a bind over climate change because just before he went to Copenhagen, it was the issue that prompted the Conservative Liberal Party opposition in Australia to dump its leader by a single vote in favour of the far more Conservative Tony Abbott. The ousted leader was Malcolm Turnbull. Breaking all the rules of combative politics, Turnbull had wanted his party to collaborate with the Rudd government and embrace emissions trading, but his climate sceptic colleagues revolted. He was overthrown and the deal was off. Recently, Malcolm Turnbull got his revenge. These days, his desire for action on climate change rates highly with Australian voters. The insights of Karen Middleton. You're listening to the first episode of The World Ahead on Monocle 24, focusing on the key challenge of climate change. We're almost out of time on today's programme, but before the end, let's hear once more from Ben Page, who describes the challenge of political short-termism when it comes to tackling climate change. It's an issue, as Ben explains, that affects not just climate change, but the whole raft of complex problems that we'll be considering throughout the series. There's two things. So one is that many of these problems are increasingly supranational. So they're not things that an individual nation state can do much about. So climate change, for example. And yet we are still in a world of of stresses, of of terror, where the nation state, and actually it seems to be in remarkably good health. There was talk, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago of of nation states gradually folding away and international institutions becoming more important. But we need those working international institutions. And we don't have have those partly because politics is becoming so volatile, so unpredictable, and in some ways so specialised, you know, and so it's all about winning, it's all about five-year terms, people aren't tribally loyal, and many of these decisions we need to almost take away from politics, and there are good examples in many countries where that's happened, so pensions, welfare bills are a big issue, and unemployment, you know, support for people who are unemployed, and, and those types of things are a huge issue, but how we fund old age, for example, in some countries has become not an argument. You know, basically people will pay in more money or they will work longer or both. And it hasn't become a contested area. And we need more of those things. Now, it's easy for me to say that. I'm not trying to get elected anytime soon. But electorates are becoming more and more disloyal to individual parties, partly because they're disgruntled at the end of growth following the recession of, you know, the great crash of 2008. And so it's harder and harder for politicians who are constantly manoeuvring for advantage, of course, to take difficult positions over things that are going to be potentially painful in the short term, but actually are necessary in the long term. Geoffrey Saunders, too, stresses the need for governments and the private sector alike to face up to some tough choices, especially in a world under the myriad pressures of climate change, resource scarcity and so on. Well, I mean, I think there are tough choices to make, and I think that things come at a cost, so you can't say that you could have both equally. But there is an aspect, and I, you know, I think about 
the way we utilize resources, and if you think about future city development, taking urbanization and climate change and saying, well, how do they interplay in the issue of smart cities um, to make it a little bit more concrete? I mean, we have a lot of underutilized resources, a lot of wasted resources. So one of the things that we could talk about is, you know, using technology to identify where those are and finding data about where are we not being efficient, but then also having the behavioral change about what is it that we need to do and think about in the ownership context, maybe using them more efficiently so that we maybe not have to build entirely new buildings, but actually use the resources that we have. So you could talk about, to make it even more concrete, the, the issue of the retrofit of the Empire State Building, for example. You can improve the energy efficiency of the Empire State Building by controlling centrally the heating, the lighting, and better insulation and things like that. But the majority of the energy usage from the Empire State Building is taken from occupant behaviors. So is there a way that you could actually change and nudge the behavior of the occupants to use that building more efficiently, you could actually affect much more of the energy usage of the building and make things differently. But we have to challenge our mindsets. And one of the things that we have a challenge with is taking these aspects from the here and now and projecting them into the future and forgetting that, you know, it's about changing the behaviors and changing understanding about how maybe we can get access to things without necessarily owning it. And if we go with our old paradigms, no models, saying that we have to own something rather than having access solely to it, then we're going to have some issues. Jeffrey Saunders from the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. And that is all we have time for on this edition of The World Ahead with Allianz. Tune in again as we explore ageing populations and the rise of the super senior, the role that megacities can and will play in our changing world, and the enduring power of simple, why making things and eschewing complexity could be the answer to the planet's greatest challenges. Listen again and find out more at the World Ahead show page at monocle.com radio or catch up via iTunes. The World Ahead with Allianz on Monocle 24.